0: Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. We are in the middle of a series called Letters to the Church, and we are travelling through five of the seven letters that were addressed to some of the churches in Asia Minor. And the letters were written by the Apostle John. Uh, he was a, a pastor, and he had also had a prophetic relationship with these seven churches. Now, you might ask, why is it seven churches? Uh, what is the significance uh, of the number seven? Well, throughout the Bible, the number seven is actually a symbol of completeness, and actually, it actually appears 54 times in the book of Revelation. As you can see, as a map on the screen. Um, these seven churches were all situated in Asia Minor. And this region shared the border between, um, let me find it, Israel and Rome. This area would have had a mix of different cultures and of believers and was an area where the Jews and the Gentiles, so the believers, the people of God and the Gentiles, the non-believers where they would have been knit together in one humanity, in one community. And each church in this area would have been facing unique challenges as they were trying to establish their different ministries in a variety of different cultural climates. And then when this letter was delivered to the church, um, it would be delivered um, and read aloud during their worship services. And so I actually want to invite, we did this last week as well, but I want to invite all of us to stand together and read the letter that was addressed to the Church of Philadelphia as if it was addressed to us as well. So Hannah is very excited. Um, I was tossing up whether we would do this, but let's just do it. Why don't we all stand and we'll just read the letter together. So from verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. What a great encouragement. Now, hands up if you have ever lost your keys. Beautiful. There's actually more hands than I was seeing. Now, this section here, with every eye closed and every head bowed, (laughs) why don't we see a hand if you've ever lost your keys? There we go. That's more of the response we want to see. We lose our keys, right, and they play such a significant role in our our way of being, our way of living, and it's so frustrating. It always happens when it's, uh, you're running late to something, you're already 10 minutes late, and you're just trying to find the key to open the door or to get to your car. Now, around three years ago, I went to a trip uh, to northern Queensland on a, a music tour, and being the smart person I am, I decided it would be a good idea to take my car keys, but as you can see, attached to my car keys, I always have my house keys and my work keys, and you know everything that allows me to, to, to operate in life, it's all attached to this one pair of keys. And the one day, we were up in Mackay, travelling uh, from the accommodation to the travel venue, and as I got off the bus, I realised that I left my backpack on the bus. And I mean, on, my bus, on the bus, in my backpack, uh, there was my iPad and my headphones and, you know, valuable possessions, But the thing that I was most upset about was my keys, because it meant that I couldn't drive my car home from the airport, I couldn't get into the house, and, you know, most importantly, I couldn't go back to work the next day and open up the store, and it it created this big thing where I had to talk to my boss and explain to him that it's going to cost him hundreds of dollars to replace the locks and everything, and, oh, it was just the hardest phone call ever. Luckily, the bus company found my backpack, and they posted it down to me, so I I was reunited with my keys. So yeah, good news. Um, yep. And now, because of that experience I've had with my keys, I've actually attached an Apple, attached an Apple AirTag to my keys, so I can locate them wherever they are and whenever they go missing. It's really easy, I just have to ask Siri to find my keys for me and then the thing starts buzzing and going off. And so, I found a solution to that problem. But keys play such a significant in our everyday lives. They give us the power to open and close doors. And doors provide safety and security. And that's why we have locking garage doors and gates, we have fly screens in front of our front doors, and they're all lockable. They provide a sense of safety, or not a sense, they do provide safety and security. And in the Old Testament, there's actually reference to a set of keys, and it's a set of keys to the house of David. You know King David, David that uh, killed the, the Goliath, the giant? There's a, it talks about the key to the house of David. And um, this set of keys, or the key, would only be left with the most reliable steward. Uh, There's a reference to that in Isaiah 22. And then again, we can see here in the letter that was written to the Church of Philadelphia that Jesus holds the key of David. So the key is now passed on to Jesus. And this gives Jesus the power to open doors that no one can shut and close doors that no one can open And therefore, all this authority now grants him um, the authority to grant access or deny access to God's kingdom. And Jesus actually, throughout the Bible, now is claiming exclusivity as the only way for humanity to have access to God the Father. And this is echoed in John 14, verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hannah was beautifully sharing this during our time of communion as we were reflecting that Jesus has made a way for us to, to be with God and it's only through him that we can have personal relationship with God. Now, let's in this letter, let's be clear. Jesus isn't telling the church of Philadelphia to repent. He isn't identifying any um, sexual uh, sins in their lives or any brokenness. He's actually encouraging them. He commends them for their faithfulness during the trialing times that they have experienced. We read at the start of the letter in Revelation 3 verse 8 to 9, he says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So saying that Jesus has opened the door because he is the the holder of the key to the kingdom. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, Something to uh, quickly understand. The church in Philadelphia, let me find it, they had little power in society. They had no reputation with the, the communities around them. They had no respect and they had no, uh, no authority, no reputation. Um, what's the significance of it, this? Um, no... Sorry, I actually skipped a section. But Jesus still commends them for their deeds and tells them that He has opened the door to God's kingdom. He has given them access to God and recognition of their perseverance by keeping His word and not denying Him. Now, the church was actually suffering at the hands of the Jewish community of Philadelphia. So that's the kind of the opposition they were facing. This Jewish community was publicly denouncing them. And they were denouncing Christians as a group separate from Judaism, which traditionally, as we know, the Jews were God's people. They were uh, the people God was faithful to from Old Testament times up until this point. And here it is, Jesus is writing saying uh, the Jews are uh, no longer part of that society, uh, part of that invitation to be part of God. Uh, Jesus makes the link that the, the synagogue... Um, which is the Jewish church, is actually now the synagogue of Satan. So saying that because they're not coming to God through me, they're actually not of God anymore. And what are the implications of what, that? Well, not only did they further isolate the Christians and make them powerless, the Jews, didn't isolate them, but actually also took away their privileges and protections, which were afforded to them by the Roman government. So, because the Jewish community isolated the Christians, the Roman government um, excluded them from some of the protections of persecution. So, the church was actually facing, um, you know, difficult times. Um, We've just spoken about how the, the Jesus speaks out against the Jews and labeling them the synagogue of Satan. And as we said, this was radical because Jesus, before Jesus, the Jews were God's people. And then we keep reading that um, because of the church's faithfulness to him, Jesus says that the Jews would be made to fall down at the church's feet. So Jesus is encouraging, saying that um, the people will fall down at at the church's feet. Now, when he talks about bowing down, he's not talking that they would um, bow down at the church itself, but rather bow down in acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. It's a a prophetic word that... um, The uh, the Jews will recognise that Jesus is the authority, that Jesus has the key to the kingdom. Um, Yeah, that he is the way, the truth and the light. And Jesus, he continues this, this theme of encouraging the church, praising them, championing them in the letter. In Revelation 3 verse 10, as we keep reading... It says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now here Christ is actually warning the church of the hour of trial that the rest of the book of Revelation unpacks. Uh, He is warning that God, um, there will be a time that will come as part of God's punishment for the wicked and the people of the earth. And not only do they now have access to God through Christ, but Jesus is actually assuring them that God will provide them with Christ's presence in the time of trial to come and that he will strengthen them and sustain them during this time. He's showing God's favour to them uh, during the the times of um, trial to come. And as they demonstrate their resilience uh, in the the situation with the Jews, God will reward them with Christ's strength and sustenance. Now, how can we apply this promise that Jesus made to the Church of Philadelphia to ourselves in the 21st century? What are the struggles that we are currently facing in this postmodern society? Now, I was doing a bit of reading, and there's this guy called Dave Benson. Yeah, he's from Brisbane, he's a, a fantastic theologian. Um, but when he tries to get his ideas across, it's a bit haphazard. So stay with me, but we're just quickly going to unpack what he says about postmodern society. He says, post-modernity, it's a core characteristic. Doubt regarding any claims to having the truth. You cannot know if your beliefs correspond to reality. Perhaps reality itself is merely a social construction. Self is the source of purpose, of truth. Language is merely the tool to get what you want. You have your truth and I have mine. Whatever works is true. Pragmatics reign. Truth is out, and tolerance is in. Relativism and diversity will guard against the oppression characterising modernity. All viewpoints, all lifestyles, all beliefs and behaviours are regarded as equally valid. Postmodernists don't desire to transcend to malaise. Rather, postmodernism swims, even wallows, in the fragmentary and the chaotic currents of change, as if that is all there is. In essence, to the church, society is saying, get relevant, or get lost. It's a pretty hard society that we live in, let's unpack that. So we live in a world where the church, as the communicator of truth, the truth of the Bible, is labelled as oppressive. Finding oneself is a source of each person's truth, and truth is now subjective. You have your truth, and I have mine. And we all know we are all aware that the church is in a hard spot at the moment. We live in this postmodern society where truth is out and tolerance is in. So we can all live our own truths and we're just meant to be tolerating each other. Um, out of love, but um, yeah, truth is out. And the church has been put under the microscope. And with recent events in local churches and organisations, I find myself having harder and harder conversations with, um, about my faith. Now yesterday I went to the barber and I found myself having to defend my Christian faith and clarify that Christianity isn't just this power-hungry, oppressive force that's wanting to take control of the world and ruin society. That's what people think when I say well, what I do over the weekend. That's, that's kind of what they challenge me with. They say how can you believe in such a, you know, uh, that, that's how society views it. And it was so much easier always just to talk about why I love Jesus and why it's good news for me and how it could be good news for you to be part of God's kingdom. It's such a much harder conversation these days. We are all being, I feel that we are being cancelled by society. In society's eyes, we have lost all authority to speak out the truth and wisdom. But there's an encouragement for us in the letter that Jesus um, writes to the Philadelphians well John writes but Jesus um, reveals it to John in verse 11 Jesus spurs the church of Philadelphia on we read I'm coming soon hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown hold on to your faith in Jesus as Lord your salvation through him to spend eternity with God the Father hold on to that salvation that Jesus is providing us Now, John, he's comparing access to the kingdom of God to a crown. It's a jewel. It's precious. It's valuable. A crown is worth protecting and holding on to. Otherwise, it might get stolen. If we don't guard it, a crown will get stolen. And at the same way, we need to hold on to the truth of our salvation and the promise that God will be with us in enduring times. Yes, times can be tough, but resilience is built during times the times of pain and suffering. That's how we build our resilience. And God assures us that we will be given Jesus' presence with us when we uh, stay true to his word and that we will be strengthened and sustained by him just like he promised to the Church of Philadelphia in the letter. And for those who are resilient and keep his word, Jesus makes two ultimate promises in this letter. The first one we read in verse 12 of um, chapter 3. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Sorry, team. Let me just read it from there and then I'll find my spot. I have no idea where I am. Let's read from the start. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I wished to be many things, but never, never did I want to be a pillar in a temple. I wanted to fly. I used to, when we watched cars as a kid, I wanted to be a car and race around car tracks. But when Jesus promises me that I'll be a pillar in a temple, that does not appeal to me at all. So what is what, what's the significance of this? What does it mean? Well, when we dig a bit deeper, we can understand that being a pillar in the temple of God is actually a metaphor. Uh, go figure, it is a metaphor. Uh, for a place. It's a metaphor for a place of honour and security while we're in the presence of God. A pillar represents the firm, unshifting support for a building. So it's what supports the structure of the building. And in this passage, Jesus assures the faithful believer that their presence among God's people is firm and secure. You have to remember these people were told that they're not part of God's kingdom. So being told that not only are they invited into God's kingdom, but they're actually the pillar that holds up the church. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's just a metaphor to hold... Uh, yeah, that they'll be able to hold on to that that community. That you know, when you take a pillar out of the building, the whole temple collapses. So there's there's imagery that um, they are the pillar itself. Um, it's just really powerful. Um, yep. This metaphor was also made a lot more powerful once we do some research about the city of Philadelphia itself as well. So the city was constantly threatened by earthquakes and had been rebuilt after deconstruction. Oh, destruction! Sorry, but it was deconstructed as well because of the de- destruction. <laughs> <laughs> um, the words actually work really well together there. So um, alliteration is key in preaching. I've heard so. Um, the people in Philadelphia would have had first-hand experience of this destruction of these earthquakes. And so you can imagine that they would have to flee from their homes to avoid being injured or even killed. And you can, we, we even know, in like 2,000 years later, in 1969, so that's only 50 years ago, the same city had a magnitude 6.7 earthquake and actually killed 53 people. The city these days isn't called Philadelphia anymore. The city was overtaken by the Turks um, in the war in 1922, and it's known as Alaser here. Well, that's how you pronounce it. But it's still the same city, and there's actually still the same structures in that city to this day. The city is still prone to earthquakes to this day. And we actually have a picture of two old pillars as the Church of St. John in the city of Philadelphia. And that's a recent picture. And as you can see, those two pillars are still standing to this day. And there's there's earthquakes that happen. I mean, earthquake, massive earthquake happened 50 years ago. And this church was built, you know, just under 2,000 years ago. And the pillars are still standing. And this just, for me, just further... um, confirms the significance of this image or this word that Jesus gives to the church of Philadelphia. When he tells the church that he would make them the pillar of the temple of God, uh, he, it is the invitation into God and that invitation is unwavering, it won't change. And it also alludes that they would play a key part in supporting God's kingdom. Again, they are the pillars of the temple and therefore they are play a key part in supporting the kingdom of God and that nothing would be able to remove them from their rightful place. When you remove the pillars of building, it collapses. They were promised to place the parts of God's community, God's people. The second promise that Jesus makes to those who keep his word is that he will give them a new name. In the second part of Revelation 3 verse 12, we keep reading that I will write on them, he's now referring to the church of Philadelphia, the church, but also the pillars, so it's kind of the, the metaphor keeps going, gets more complex, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I'll also write on them my new name, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here Jesus is saying, the letter says that on the pillars will be the name of God, the name of God's city, and the new name of Jesus. All sounds good and well, but what does this mean? What is the significance of a name? What is the significance of the name of God? Is a name just merely a way we identify someone? Is it an identifier? What does it mean if we put the name, our name, on something? we're going to figure this out. Just a quick poll. Hannah did a quick poll about Nando's before, so I thought I'd keep going with the poll idea. Who here was alive in 1999? Cool, I was alive as well. Um, Okay, now put your hands up if you've ever seen Toy Story 2. Great, so if you haven't made the connection, Toy Story 2 was released in 1999. Well, today's your lucky day. We're quickly going to glance at the screen and watch a quick clip of Toy Story 2. Let's have a look. Oh, thank goodness you're here! Don't you love Toy Story? Um, It's funny, we we always watch his movies as kids, and uh, to us it's just entertainment, but there's so many different... um, messages in there and you know, sometimes it's, it's not a good message that we want to take a hold of but there's so much good in these stories and um, when I'm watching these movies these days I, I, I try and figure out what biblical truth can I find and I, I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek so uh, I'm not saying this quite seriously but like genuinely I try and find biblical truth and when I was watching this the other week um, I was trying to figure out, oh, what can I draw from this? And the first option that popped into my mind was, you know, as a, the toy repairer is um, polishing and cleaning um, Woody's eyes and ears, you know, maybe he's trying to give him eyes and ears to hear. Or... Um <laughs> Hannah found it funny, so... Or when he's, you know, sewing his arm back onto Woody, Woody's arm back, you know, maybe he's restoring the arm back to the full body, you know. We're all part of the body of Christ, and in our each way, we have our own purposes, and together, we, um, only together can we you know, act within God's holistic plan for the church. Um, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but there is a significance in this that we can draw together, and it's going to help us better understand what the significance of having God's name put on the pillar, God's name being put on the church, and God's name being put on us, what what is that significance? Now Andy, the boy who played with Woody, he wrote his name on the bottom of Woody's shoe to identify Woody as his property. He's saying that he owns Woody. And when the, the toy repairer comes in and he fixes Woody, he paints over Andy's name on the boot so that the new owner can take ownership of the toy of Woody. And in the same way, as we, we move this metaphor back, um, when Jesus gives us a new name, not only is he wiping over all this the stuff we've been called, all the stuff that um, we're labelled, the stuff that holds us back, he cleans that but then he also writes God's name to say that we are God's people, that we have relationship with God, that God will never forsake us. And in the the time of the church of Philadelphia, inscriptions on pillars were a common way of indicating to whom the temple was dedicated or who was being honoured by that pillar. So in the passage, it was saying that God's name will be written on the pillar, And so again, we can see how this letter is trying to affirm that to the church at the time as well. They would have understood this. And by saying that, not only will you be the pillar, but I'm going to write my name on you as the pillar, uh, just further solidifies that idea that um, they are God's people, that they, through Jesus, who's made a new way, can be part of God's kingdom, and no one can remove them from that. Nothing... Uh, people say about them, nothing that um, they are labelled will take them away from the promise that God makes to them. And we read in Matthew 16, verse 70 to 20, where Jesus says to the disciples, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Again, another reference to the significance of the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In this passage, Jesus promised Peter that he will be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that he would have access to the kingdom of God. He also promised him that on Peter he will build his church, and that he will... That he will build his church and that the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. And the wonderful news is that this promise that Jesus made to Peter before he was resurrected, uh, died and resurrected, and then he makes the same promise to the church of Philadelphia is also a promise for us to grab hold of. That when we keep his word, we stay faithful to what he promises us. We will also be made pillars in the temple and called his children. And when we feel disqualified by the house of Satan, We are called God's possession. We are owned by God. Nothing can separate us from God's love. When we keep Jesus' word, when we act in resilience during times of suffering, God promises to give us his presence, that he will give us strength and he will sustain us. And in a moment, as the team leads us in a song, I want to invite you to bring before God some of the things that are facing you, what are some of the difficult situations you are in? And what ways do you feel counseled from society? In which areas of your life would you be better off to not keep Jesus's word? In what situations do you find yourself where it would be better for you to not identify as a Christian? Is it your workplace? Is it your university or your sporting team? Maybe You are the only Christian in your family and you find it hard to have a conversation about your faith without being shut down. As the team sings over us, why don't we just take a moment now just to reflect. Let's come before God and let's just identify those key areas where we haven't always uphold our faith in its full truth. We hope you've been blessed by this message.